Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 87, Reforming Judaism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. Every two years, the reform movement under the umbrella of the Union for Reform Judaism, the URJ, gets its leadership together and many, many members together in what they call the biennial. This year, it's happening in Boston at the beginning of December. And we thought this would be a really interesting opportunity to do a deep dive into looking at Reform Judaism, because Reform Judaism was an impulse to, as it says, Reform Judaism around the time of the Enlightenment, this notion that something significant had changed in the situation of the Jews was picked up on early on by a number of people who became known as the early reformers. And we thought it would be really interesting to understand what became of their ideas and how they turned into a particular movement, uh, and then also, as we'll discuss in some of these episodes, and as we'll discuss going forward, and as we've discussed before, those ideas also manifested in a variety of other movements. But we thought it would be interesting to sort of explore where the reform movement has been, where it is today, and where it might be going with a number of its key leaders. And Lex and I also think that it would be really interesting for us to be discussing what we're hearing along the way and trying to understand the relevance of everything that we're going to be talking about to organized Judaism in its sort of existing forms and in new forms. So we're really excited to begin that process today with our guest, Rabbi Daniel Freelander, who is the president of the World Union for Progressive Judaism. It's the umbrella organization for reform and progressive Jewish movements uh, all over the world. Rabbi Freelander is also very knowledgeable about the history of Reform Judaism, and he also is a well-known musician in the Jewish world. He wrote a couple of songs that uh, a lot of folks who have been to uh, synagogues, not only in the Reform movement, are familiar with. Uh, famously, they are the songs Shalom Rav and Lo Alecha, for those who know them. I should say that uh, he actually composed the music to these songs. The words are from the traditional liturgy, but the form in which many of us know these songs uh, really comes from him. And so it's a great gift that he's given us. We're really excited to talk to Danny Freelander today about the history of the reform movement. And this is actually going to be a two-part episode. Next week, we're going to look at uh, a little bit more of the history and, and talk about some of the implications of that history and what it all means with our guest today. As we go through the rest of this series, we're going to be talking to Rick Jacobs, the current head of the Union for Reform Judaism, and April Baskin, who is the vice president for Audacious Hospitality, Jonah Pesner, who is the head of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, their Washington, D.C. arm that focuses on policies. And then we're going to talk to some congregational rabbis about some of the innovation that's happening in the reform movement. To put it in the context of one of the big topics that has 
guided this podcast from the beginning, the work of Clayton Christensen, the idea of disruptive innovation. We're also really interested in this question of whether the reform movement might be able to be a place that is sort of big enough and has enough resources and has enough philosophical commitment to these ideas, to the ideas of reform, to potentially incubate new reforms. So that not only are we going to see the new reforms happening outside in new startup organizations, but Sometimes the literature tells us that some of these innovations happen within the sort of R&D labs of some of these larger organizations. And so Lex and I have been curious for a while about whether that's a possible line that might happen in one or another of the major uh, larger Jewish organizational movements, the reform movement, the conservative movement, the JCC world. And we're really excited to be able to explore that in particular in the reform movement with this deep dive over the next few weeks. So we're excited for you to join us on this journey. We're really grateful to the folks at the Union for Reform Judaism, especially Liora Kay, for helping us put together this series of interviews. And uh, we're excited to jump right in. So Danny Freelander, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, we've been talking for well over a year and a half now about what the future of Judaism might look like if it's different from the present of Judaism. And in a way, I think that the reform movement, the origins of the reform movement, represents a, a very early, if not the first, maybe it is the first time when there was really sort of a profound sense that the future of Judaism has got to look a lot different from the past of Judaism and that there was a conscious effort to do that. And I'm, and I'm wondering if you could sort of bring us into the beginnings of the thought that became the reform movement? There have been radical breaks within Judaism before. I think we're living in a period of radical breaks once again, and that radical break period probably started at the very end of the uh, 18th century with emancipation and hasn't really played itself out yet. You know, we, we don't yet have a lasting uh, Judaism that's been consistent for anything more than the last uh, 200 years. We tend to believe that whatever we grew up with is traditional Judaism, but I, I see Judaism sort of as a pendulum that's trying to figure out what its equilibrium is, what its center point is, and has been for the last 200 years and hasn't found it yet. So let's go back to, to the beginning of this time period. Reform Judaism is, is one of several responses to modernity that emerged in the early 19th century, in the early 1800s. And they're competing ways of dealing with this new liberal political climate, uh, which allows Jews to live wherever they want to live, instead of in hell of settlement or in a defined geographic area, which allows Jews to participate in any professions they want to pro uh, participate in, which allows Jews to uh, practice Judaism without permission from anyone else. And some fled Judaism altogether and converted out. Um, others created uh, what we can now call modern uh, orthodoxy. You know, be, be a, a Jew in your home and a man on the streets, but figured out how to reconcile the two. Um, in, in Eastern Europe, the responses were primarily Zionism and the move towards uh, freedom to speak Hebrew, modern Hebrew, and, uh, and even Hasidut. But the whole world, the, 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 the underpinning of the world was just changing at that time. So Reform Judaism is one of the emerging Judaisms that emerged in the early 1800s. People want to figure out a way to retain their Jewishness, to continue being Jewish, but not to live like they did in the mid-18th century. So they had, to, they had to invent things. And uh, the first things that happened 
happened really in, uh, in Westphalia and in Sison or in Hamburg. And Hamburg's important because Hamburg's a port. And Ham- so whatever happens in Hamburg doesn't stay in Hamburg. It gets exported. But um, so a guy named Israel Jacobson in uh, 1810 um, starts experimenting with, uh, he has a school and he starts experimenting with family worship. And the first innovation that he introduces is uh, family pews, family seating, <clears throat> where the, the kids and their parents would sit together during services. This was a radical reformation at the time. And this isn't what we would sort of imagine, what we would sort of call a, quote, orthodox synagogue, but they started to have families sitting together. That was the innovation. Orthodox day school. So it was a Jewish school, but he's, when he invited the parents and he had everybody sit together for, for tefillah, and he gave a drasha in German. That was a big deal because not in Yiddish and not in, and not in, uh, in Hebrew, because the people there didn't necessarily know Yiddish or Hebrew, but they did know German. So it was, uh, he introduced the notion of, of, of preaching, which was an emulation of what's going on in the Protestant church in Germany, because Protestantism also emerges in Germany, albeit much earlier. And the sermon, it's, it's not so much that the sermon's a creative idea, it's the use of the vernacular that's the creative idea. And uh, the final thing he introduces is instrumental music. Uh, he introduces a, uh, an organ to accompany mixed singing. He doesn't make any other liturgical changes, but he wants people who are able to sit together in the concert hall or in the school assembly to have the same kind of uplifting feeling and family feeling and services. But it's, but it's part of a school. It's not an independent synagogue yet. And what is this in response to? Uh, this, sort of what, what has happened? Uh, is, Israel Jacobson is a, um, a leading member of the community. He's the, uh, I don't know this exactly, but assume he's like the president of the day school. And he wants his day school to be the best community day school in town and wants it to be responding to modernity. He doesn't want the Jews in the community sending their kids to uh, a, a uh, a Lutheran day school or a secular day school. So he's, he's trying to figure out how can I make this attractive uh, to the people in our community? But he doesn't see it as a synagogue. The first one who sees it as a synagogue is in Hamburg in 1818. And we're just coming up now on, on the 200th anniversary of the very first uh, reform synagogue. And this is the beginning of what I call moderate reform or German reform. And for uh, all the listeners to understand, reform has gone through three very distinct cycles. Uh, cycle one is the emergence of Reform Judaism in the early 19th century, right through the 1880s. Uh, period two is called classical reform, uh, which dates from the 1880s right through the 1930s. And then you have, I'd call it new reform, but post-World War II reform. Uh, which emerges after that. They're very distinct phases. They have different practices, different philosophies. And uh, while they bleed into one another, because change takes place slowly, they're very much distinct, uh, distinct phases. So we're now talking about the moderate reform period, the German reform period, uh, the period that, that uh, created um, synagogues, the majority of synagogues in Germany in the 1800s and in Poland by the early 1900s. Uh, and the majority of synagogues in the United States. The largest period of growth of synagogues in the United States is the 1840s. Uh, my wife just retired as the, 
the senior rabbi of a synagogue founded in 1847, the oldest synagogue in New Jersey. And it was, of course, created by German Jews who came over from Hamburg in the 1830s and 1840s. The Judaism they saw while they were in Hamburg was a moderate reform Judaism, and they spread very quickly. They didn't hang out on the East Coast. They went very quickly to, to Pittsburgh and Detroit and Chicago and Kansas City and St. Louis and Denver and San Francisco, all of which have congregations founded in the 1840s. Reform Judaism, which is sort of an overview title, this was really moderate reform, not radical reform, and heavily influenced by German and Germany. And we'll come back, let's talk about what the characteristics um, were of those, uh, those congregations. Uh, one is, uh, they're German Jews. They like decorum. They like order. They like to start on time. They like to end on time. They hate repetition. So one of the first things they did is abolish the second day of uh, the festivals of the Chagim. Of, of, uh, they abolished the second day of Sukkot and, and uh, Shemini Atzeret and second days of beginning in Pesach, the second day of, of uh, Shavuot. They said, we know when the holiday starts. The calendar's clean. We don't have to wait for the shofar blast. Um, we know when to do it. So they, they abolished the second day. Basically, they, did a, they rejected halachic Judaism's approach to the Chagim and returned to the biblical notion of they know when the new moon is, and that's when they celebrate the holiday. But they didn't change the holiday, you know, they didn't, they didn't, and they didn't change the liturgy. They kept the liturgy very much the same. The second big piece is they recognized that Dina de Malchuta Dina, the law of the land, is the overriding law. So if the, uh, the law of the land requires a civil marriage license before a clergy person can officiate in a marriage, uh, or a civil divorce before they can issue a get, they uh, raise the level of German law or French law to being equal or higher than Jewish law, that it always takes precedence, that if you want to be a good citizen, you have to ob obey the laws of the land. The third piece, family seating. That here they're em emulating the Protestants, um, where they're family pews. And the fourth major principle was uh, sermons in, in the vernacular. So they began publishing, they translated the, 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 the Bible into German. They translated the Sidor into German. They didn't necessarily read it out loud in German, but they translated it into German so you could understand. Now that led to the beginning of that second revolution of reform, which was the, the revolution of rationality. Once people saw what the text meant, they started reading them and saying, why am I saying this? This doesn't make any sense to me at all. So it started leading towards what became radical reform, which was stage two and a rejection of, of some of the ritual items and practices of Judaism. So let me ask you, though, about this first phase. Uh, is this being organized by some kind of central body, or is this just random things that are happening in, in particular congregations? No, that's a really important question. Uh, you don't see a move towards centralization of philosophy until you start seeing central bodies, assemblies of rabbis, or the establishment of seminaries. Uh, right now, this is, this is all independent, emerging congregations making their own decisions. So if somebody wanted to do a great PhD dissertation is to compare the, uh, the bylaws 
which, which codified the rules of the congregation of, of some of these early congregations. You can, you can do that easily in the States, except they're all in German, uh, the early bylaws of these congregations. But they say, you know, they, they say what the observances of the synagogue would be. This is a really important reform concept. It's the autonomy of the congregation, mm-hmm. um, which has never really gone away as much as seminaries and, and movement organizations have tried to articulate what the principles are, individual congregations can just say, screw it, this is what we're gonna do, this is what our minhag is, this mm-hmm. is what our custom is, this is what we wanna do. So there's never been uniformity within reform. But so in these early times, so are these new congregations that are being established uh, under these principles or are these existing sort of orthodox congregations that are changing their practice? Uh, yes and yes. In Germany, religion is funded by the state, always has been. So you need to get recognized. And if, you, if your breakaway congregation could get recognized, then they did a breakaway within the Jewish community. If they couldn't uh, do a breakaway, they did an internal corporate takeover. And they tried to influence the changes in the congregation. So don't forget, the rabbinate is just beginning to emerge as a strong voice. Congregations are very much run by the Balabatim. The lay people. Yes, and by, and by the lay leaders, and it's, it's uh, only with the emergence of central seminaries that you start seeing the rabbinic voice becoming a primary voice. To what extent, then, is what's happening here being driven by lay people, and to the extent that it's being driven by whoever it's being driven by, is it out of a sense of a, a deep philosophical notion that this is a better way to be Jewish, or is it being driven by some kind of panic that people are leaving, sort of like we recognize today? Uh, and and is it being driven by lay people, or is it being driven by this uh, emerging class of rabbis who are sort of, and that's why they, they become more dominant, is because it was something that was driven by them? I thoroughly believe it was driven by lay people. I see the, the emerging new movements in, in uh, Germany in the early 1800s being very parallel to emerging communities in North America in the early 21st century. Um, it's not from a position of panic. Uh, it's, it's from a position of, I want to be Jewish, and the rules of the game have changed. The world has changed. How do I do that in a way that feels good to me? I can't live the same way I used to live because it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean anything. I'm living in multiple societies. I want to live in multiple societies. Help me figure out how to be able to live in a Jewish world and a secular German world. And the lack of a central body is, is uh, crucial to allowing many, many voices to emerge. So last question on, on this. Are these people talking to each other? How, how are these principles emerging? They are starting to talk to each other probably in the 1830s and 1840s. And I'm not an expert on this, but there are a number of rabbinic synods, S-Y-N-O-D-S, uh, held in Germany in this time period, with both um, mostly rabbis taking the lead. But don't forget, all these rabbis are trained in traditional settings. So this, for them, is a big radical statement. They're not perpetuating the Judaism they're, they're, they've inherited. They're making radical statements. So, uh, but the rabbinical synod start meeting and they're very controversial. But when you get a group of leaders together, eventually they move towards consensus and consensus starts restricting what the movement starts looking like. So it's, it's, it's this very first part of the, 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 the first 70 years of, of, of the 1880s, reform is all over the map and at different places. And by the time you get to the 1880s, 
it's been institutionalized and, and defined much more clearly, and you either buy into it or you don't buy into it. Classic to this is in, in, the 18, in 1857, um, Isaac Mayer Wise, who was the, uh, had just moved to America 10 years earlier, published a prayer book called Minhag America. You know, he'd been here 10 whole years, so he'd been published a, a, a prayer book called The American Ritual. Um, and, uh, and David Einhorn, who's a rabbi at Harsh Sinai in Baltimore, issues a prayer book called Olat Tamid, The Eternal Offering. And uh, Einhorn's prayer book is primarily in German, uh, with a few lines of English of uh, Hebrew in it, and Wise's prayer book are parallel pages of Hebrew and English, and uh, they were the competing reform prayer books for 40 years until in the uh, 1890s. Isaac Mayer Wise, who was then president of the CCAR of the Rabbinic Union of of, uh, of Reform Judaism, chaired the convention where they adopted as the Union prayer book in 1895. David Einhorn's Olat Tamid and not his Minhag America. Isaac Mayer Wise was a moderate reformer and Einhorn was a radical reformer. And you see codified through the 1880s and 1890s is the victory of radical reform over moderate reform. So now let's move into the second period and talk about why reform changes. It changes for two uh, reasons. One are uh, organizational and, uh, and philosophical, and the others are sociological. Let's go to the sociological first. As you may uh, know that the majority of Jews in North America in the 1830s through the 1870s were German Jews. While there were Sephardic Jews who would come earlier, there were not large numbers. The, the vast majority, maybe a quarter of a million Jews in North America were of German origin, and heavily influenced by what was happening in Germany in, in the early 1800s. Their um, comfort level very much parallels the move from moderate reform to radical reform, but it was pushed by one very significant event, and that were, were the pogroms in the Pale of Settlement in Russia and Poland in 1881. Between 1881 and 1915 or 1917, two and a half million East European Jews left Eastern Europe and came to North America. So you go from the place where in, in the 1870s, the German Jews run the show, be it modern Orthodox or Reform, but they, they, they run the show to these Eastern European Jews come over and uh, dominate the society. And how do the German Jews feel about the East European Jews? Not very comfortable. You know, they didn't want them in their backyard. Um, they, uh, created settlement houses to try to figure out how to Americanize them. They, uh, even the Reformed Jews of Temple Emmanuel created, paid for the creation of the Jewish Theological Seminary in 1887 as a way to train uh, American rabbis for East European Jews, just as the Hebrew Union College would train American rabbis for German Jews, the separate but equal Judaism. The Bintel brief and, and, and the forwards in the early 20th century defined intermarriage as being that unacceptable marriage between an East European Jew and a German Jew. So there was a, I won't call it Jewish anti-Semitism, but a real Jewish discomfort with the other, the Jewish other. So that's a sociological force that pushes uh, the German Jews, i.e. the Reformed Jews, to in organize very quickly and to standardize what their practices are 
um, as a way to be much clearer about who they are as German Jews and as American Jews, and subconsciously, I think, as a way to uh, keep out the, the, uh, the Jews they didn't want in their congregations. In the 1860s, um, Isaac Mayer Wise, who was a master organizer, tries to create Zion College, tries to create a rabbinical school to train American rabbis, because there were no rabbis in North America. You had, you had to import people from Germany, and he does not succeed, goes bankrupt within a year. He tries again in 1873, but he takes a different approach. The reason it failed the first time was not for lack of students, it was for lack of money. So he brings together all the synagogues in North America and creates an organization called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. It's not reform. It's a generic American union. It's a, after B'nai B'rit, it's the oldest organist, Jewish organization in, in North America. Uh, and its goal was very specific and simple. It was to uh, raise money to create a seminary to train rabbis to serve American congregations. Had no other purpose. So after two years, they had amassed enough, they assessed every congregation, they had amassed enough money to open a seminary in 1875 called the Hebrew Union College uh, in the basement of Wise's Synagogue in Cincinnati. Eight years later, 1883, they ordained their first four American-trained rabbis. Now, the year is fascinating. 1883 uh, is two years after large numbers of East European Jews start flooding onto these shores. And it's, it, it happens at exactly the time that the German Jews are saying, we have to stake, put a stake in the ground uh, and uh, assert who we are uh, to protect our turf. So you have, uh, the date is July 11, I think it's 1883, the first ordination of, reform, of rabbis in North America. And all the uh, leading congregational leaders from around North America come, including Orthodox from all over the, all over the, the country for this ordination, which goes very well. Uh, and then they have a celebration at the, uh, the big hotel in town. And uh, the caterer, we think, upgrades the menu and chooses to serve things on them. And either that happened or the, uh, the radical reformers got to the caterer and changed the menu so the caterer served oysters and milk and meat and shrimp and the menu was put on the tables and the more traditional people in, and, and the assembly looked at the menu stood up and walked out saying this was a, a takeover it was a you know we thought this was going to be a trans-american training rabbis for all uh, all jews in north america and we found out there's been a takeover by the radical reformers and this is the beginning of the period of classical reform. This predates the Central Conference of American Rabbis, because there aren't any very many American rabbis yet. But first comes the lay organization, the UAHC, Union of American Hebrew Congregations. Then comes Hebrew Union College in 1875, the Trefa Banquet in 1883, and then in 1887, you see uh, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, which is really an alumni organization of the Hebrew Union College. Um, as becoming the central voice of American reform rabbinate. Before all this happens, if a 21st century uh, regular sort of American Jew would go in a time machine and come to a, a reform congregation, would they kind of be surprised to feel like, uh, oh, this feels kind of orthodox, uh, what we call today kind of it feels orthodox? 
Yeah, again, if I think of my wife's congregation, if I was to show up there in the 1870s, this is before they really made the switch to reform. Men and women didn't sit together immediately. Women certainly did not serve on the board or have any official functions, but they were very formal services. The sidor looked like a traditional sidor, like any earlier sidor. They kept two days of Rosh Hashanah, but only one day of the festival. There's no rational reason for that, just, just what they did. You had to attend services or you got fined. <laughs> wow. Okay, it was a way of guaranteeing a minion. You know, your dues went up if you didn't attend. And you got fined if you talked during services. And the services were not particularly participatory. If I went back to the same congregation 20 years later, it'd be a totally different thing. It would remind me of, of walking into Temple Emmanuel now. So once these reform synagogues start, um, both in the moderate period and then in the more radical period, is there an evolving sense of proper practice of Judaism other than in the synagogue? Uh, yeah, there is. And, and, you know, again, these are not, they don't see themselves as reform synagogues. They see them as German-American synagogues. Notice the name of the organization, Union of, of American Hebrew Congregation. So there's no sense of reform in there at all. I think that in their homes, the majority of them did keep kosher. Uh, I think in their homes, you know, Friday evening service was a Vesper service, an early service. The notion of a late Friday evening service comes much, much later. You don't see this shift to a more synagogue-based Judaism until you get into the uh, more radical reform time period. Say when candlelighting gets moved in the prayer book from being in the home to being in the synagogue, or Kiddush gets introduced into the synagogue. So in this, this early period, you know, they are living as they did in Germany, which doesn't preclude them, say, from having Christmas trees in their house, because that was the German local tradition. But kashrut-wise, pork was not, uh, not eaten, shellfish was unknown, and uh, the degree of kashrut they kept in their homes, one doesn't know. It changes a lot in the 1880s. These are, you know, what was the, what was the great Gene Wilder movie, The Frisco Kid, as, as he's moving west, you know, and he's trying to ride his horse really fast because the sun is setting the before Shabbos. The, the Jews constantly questioning, how do we both be truly Jewish and truly American? What was the relationship like between whether it's Reform Jews or all Jews and broader society in the 1800s? Uh, well, Jews saw their role as being good citizens, very important to them. And part of the American ethos was this very clear separation between church and state. Um, and so being part of American was being religious, was being part of a, a religious institution. So affiliation rates were much higher in North America than they were in Europe because it was one of the expectations that everyone went to their church on the Sabbath. And there was, a, from the very beginning, a, a real respect uh, between non-Jewish religious groups and Jewish religious groups. The only, only the evangelicals, and uh, this is, you know, pre-Vatican II uh, Catholics saw their role as converting the Jews. Don't forget, Catholics had the same acceptance problems, even worse acceptance problems than the Jews did in, in the uh, 19th century. Even when they, when they went to build their synagogues, you know, unlike European synagogues, which are built in courtyards, in places where they won't be seen in public places, American synagogues of the, uh, eight, uh, the 1800s were built on the main streets. Think Central Synagogue in New York City at 55th Street and, 
and Lexington. And they were built in the same style as the biggest public buildings, as the churches and symphony halls and city halls. They were, they were important public statements. Um, and that was part of the separate but equal piece of this time. So uh, anti-Semitism was not rampant uh, in this time period, but separate but equal was an absolutely accepted principle. And that's important for you to, to understand because when um, the German Jews start setting up these you know, like parallel seminary and parallel eating clubs and, uh, and country clubs, they thought that as, as a perfectly acceptable way to live within America. We just have our own ways of doing things. We're our separate communities, but we're also all Americans. And uh, this is very influenced by how Jews behaved in the 1850s, 60s, as they were spreading west across America and trying to make it in the financial markets and the real estate markets and the business markets. And they did very well. I'm curious, we've been talking about American Judaism thus far, um, sort of broadly conceived as the entire beast of, you know, sea to shining sea. Although I guess there were lots of states still making their way into the Union during this time period. But can you talk a little bit about sort of the geographic distinctions that were that were going on at this time? Because I know early on, in the South especially, there was a really strong presence as we enter into this classical reform period of classical reform congregations in the South. There, there were different developments in the Northeast, of course, and in the Midwest. And I'd love to hear how all of that was playing out as we, both in that early period and as we move forward a little bit into that classical, classical period too. It, it's, first of all, it's very important to know when a congregation was founded. So, you know, if you look at eight congregations founded in the 1840s and 1850s, and that's, you know, Atlanta and Birmingham and Houston, um, they, they, you can watch the evolution of reform in those congregations. They start as German congregations, moderate reform, and by the 1880s, they're absolutely classical reform congregations. And now they're struggling to get into sort of new reform. They're, they're big, lumbering one synagogue per city, you know, there's no such thing as breakaway congregations in the middle of the country. The geographic center of, uh, of American Judaism in the 1870s, dead center was Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where, you know, if you, if you mapped out all the Jews in North America, that's where the, the geographic center was. So it's sort of like mid, Midwest on the verge of the East. But it wasn't an East Coast center. The Sephardic Jews all stayed around the coasts. But the, the uh, German Jews zoomed in. They went young, went west, young man. You know, they, they went west very quickly. So um, the, the, the southern congregations are not radically different than the western congregations or the midwestern congregations. Um, you know, again, one synagogue per town. That was the, the official reform voice of that community. The, the, the southern large congregations, all the large congregations, changed much more slowly than the suburban ones. And that's... Suburban Judaism doesn't happen until post World War II, and that's all. That's period three. We'll get to there. Get there eventually. So I understand that a lot of what's going on sociologically in these periods, in both the the moderate and the beginning of the classical period. And I also know that there was some really fantastic philosophical thinking going on, some incredible writing by Isaac Mayer Wise and others. 
And I'm wondering two things. Number one, uh, are there things that the philosophers are thinking about and writing about that may not be being implemented for whatever sociological reason and that there's a, a certain divergence there? I'm interested in that in part because I wonder whether some of that philosophy is still relevant today in, in new ways. So let's, let's stay with that because here, here are four or five real philosophical changes that are being driven by the, by the rabbinic leaders, the philosophical leaders, starting in the middle of the 19th, the 19th century and come to, to full flower towards the end of the 19th century, things like universalism versus particularism. Okay, what's, what's the goal of Judaism? Is it um, Jewish triumphalist or is it universal triumphalism? Um, is, the, is the Mashiach here to save the Jewish people or is, it, or is the uh, concept of Mashiach saving the world and, and universal progress? Um, are the Jews a chosen people or an orla goyim, a, a, a symbolic people that should, should, should lead the rest of the world? Do, uh, do we really want to return to sacrificial Judaism, to the pre-Rabbinic Judaism, sacrifice of animals, belief in resurrection of the dead, uh, or is that uh, those ideas that we're no, we just have in our prayer book, but we don't really believe anymore? Those are, those are like mega issues, and those mega issues continue to play out today. Do you want to say things in your prayer service that you really don't believe? Or like in the Aleinu prayer, Shehem Ishtachavim Lahevel Vareik. You know, we, we don't want to be like the other nations who bow down to uh, emptiness and, uh, and falsehoods. Well, we've taken that out of our Aleinu in most contemporary prayer books, but do you want to keep it in there? We talk about uh, resurrection of the dead, Mechayat, mechayat Amitim. Those are things that the reformers in this time period took out of the prayer book because how can we say things that we absolutely believe are not true? So, you know, what is our obligation to Jewish particularism and in our inherited tradition as opposed to moving the tradition forward into a tradition that makes sense in today's world? That's, that's the eternal Jewish question. That's why the responsive literature emerged even within traditional Judaism. So they're not so much radical ideas, but normal ideas that thinkers would raise. Not so much the Jew in the pew. I don't think the, the average Jew cared that much about these issues. But once the rabbis get organized and start delineating what's inside the reform camp and what's outside the reform camp, it has really big implications for what Judaism is going to feel like. And the prayer books reflect that. So you know, I, I grew up with a uh, the Kiddush in the Union prayer book that I grew up with would say, uh, who chose us and, and, and sanctified us, but never said, from amongst the other people. No, God chose us to be a role model, sanctified us, but didn't, show, but didn't put down any other people. Or Kol Nidre never appeared in the, in the Union prayer book that I grew up with because it was an irrational prayer that all vows we make are erased. How can you make a contract with someone if, ever, if, if, if the Christians see this and they'll never make a contract with the Jew again? So they, they put a rational lens on it and changed a whole bunch of things. Resurrection of the dead was another one. The practice, uh, the ritual practice of Judaism uh, in the synagogue started reflecting the philosophical ideas that were being talked about at that time period, about a rational Judaism.
What's fascinating is not only in certain editions of the Union Prayer Book didn't, I mean, in all of them in the early versions, they didn't have Kol Nidre in its traditional form. But right. in some of them, they totally, they wrote basically the opposite. They like have, it says Kol Nidre on the page. And then it's like, we, we commit to all sorts of vows and promises, which is sort of the opposite of the meaning of it, which is the nullification of it. Um, Unapologetic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating thing because they, they still wanted to like have this moment that's sort of associated with a thing called Kol Nidre. The rubric yeah. is called Kol Nidre, but yeah. here's our Kol Nidre. It exactly. Has, it's ex exactly the reverse of the traditional one. Right. Yeah. It's just a fascinating thing there. Um, I, I wanted to ask a question because I know in this time period, um, mid to late 1800s and even continuing, there's a lot of internal and external discussion about sort of is Judaism a religion is Judaism a race um, that actually it might surprise people now it was actually like very common kinds of thinking that Judaism was a race for for extended eras in American history and I guess I'd love to hear how the reform movement wrestled with this because my understanding has been um, what I've heard um, in a variety of contexts is that reform really stood behind the idea that Judaism is a religion and that in the American context, that was a helpful thing to do because of this idea of freedom of religion. If we're a religion, then we are, then we deserve the freedoms that go to religions, that kind of thing. And this was a uniquely American thing because America saw religion and peoplehood as separate. So you were an American who was Catholic, or an American who was Protestant, or an American who was Jewish, or an American who was Muslim. They didn't see the confluence of nationality and, um, and religion, which existed in Europe. And, I, and my current position as president of the World Union for Progressive Judaism, when I deal with Jews in, uh, in, in, in Germany or Poland or, um, or France or Italy, they, they don't get this separation between religion and, and, and nationality, but the American conception where that we were Americans of the mosaic persuasion, <laughs> you know, that we were Americans, but our religion was Judaism. And so the conversion to Judaism was not conversion to a peoplehood. It was conversion to a religion, a set of beliefs, which we just articulated some of the beliefs that they held. Um, but that's very different. The Eastern European Jews didn't get that at all. And that was at the core of the, 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 the reason that conservative Judaism outflanked reform in the early 20th century was the rejection of peoplehood, the rejection of the notion of race. I, we're not in that place anymore, but they really saw re religion and peoplehood as separate items. I think now, this is, a hundred, this is 120 years, 130 years later, we see them as very much intertwined. And we're comfortable being... Americans and Jews, not Americans that happen to be Jews, but Jews and Americans. We have dual identities. But um, the notion of single identities was still very prevalent in, in the 19th century. So they didn't wear yarmulkes because in America, a sign of respect is removing your hats. They, they basically rejected the inherited rabbinic tradition, halachic Judaism, and started looking back at the priestly Judaism of, of pre-70 AD, and started calling their, their congregations temples, as opposed to synagogues, which is a rabbinic term. And uh, their rabbis were called ministers instead of rabbis, which is a rabbinic term. Their dress emulated the dress of priests much more than they did of rabbis. Uh, so that it looked and felt very, very, very different. But 
the ethical underpinning, the, under, the philosophical underpinning was that ethics is far more important than ritual behavior. So there was a denigration of ritual behavior. Kashrut was not abandoned because there's not anything wrong with Kashrut, but if they couldn't figure out an ethical reason why we should be observing Kashrut, Stam, just to do it because it's, a, it's a, something that differentiates us from other people, didn't work for the early reformers. That God commanded it didn't work for the early They wanted to know why God commanded it, how this helped move the world towards a better place. Um, so, you know, the main service moves from Saturday morning. Why? Because that's when most Jews, many of the Jews had to work, mm-hmm. to Friday night becomes Temple Town. Torah readings move from Saturday morning to Friday night because if they left it on Saturday morning, the Jews would never hear Torah being read. These are all things that when the Eastern European Jews showed up at Central Synagogue or Temple Emmanuel in New York, and they walked in the door and they were asked to remove their head coverings and uh, were told to be quiet and listen to the, the choir and not to talk during services, they thought they'd walk, landed on a foreign planet. And, uh, and they walked right out. And the conservative movement emerges as the dominant movement because they spoke to the Eastern European Jews. Hmm. You know, when the service says it starts at 9 a.m. in a conservative congregation, you know that if you're coming for the bar mitzvah and you show up at 10.30, you're fine. And if the invitation in a reform congregation says 10.30 a.m. and you show up at 11, you miss the bar mitzvah kid. It's still the imposition of this German sense of propriety and time and order um, that, that differentiated these movements during this, this uh this time period. By the time you get to the 1930s, the conservative movement is twice as large as the reform movement. Uh, and they're still both primarily urban movements. So this is, this is a period of urban Judaism, of large synagogues, of the integration of the first generation integration of Eastern European Jews into, into American Judaism. But it's also the, the heyday of classical reform, of separate but equal Judaism. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still sort of thinking about the relationship between what's going on in the sort of um, seminaries and sort of other elite conversations and what's going on in, in the pews or even outside of the pews. And it's interesting that you sort of describe the emergence of the conservative movement there because I actually grew up as the son of a conservative rabbi. And I think that growing up that way, I sort of uh, grew up with the notion that what conservative Judaism is was kind of the way that rabbis think of what conservative Judaism is. And only later did I kind of discover, and, and you know, and the idea is kind of that the, the congregants aren't really doing it right, right? You know, and, the, and they signed on for something and they're not living it out. And only later did I kind of realize and, and more and more profoundly that that's not the way the congregants see it, and that's never been the way that the congregants saw it. And your description sort of, I think, underscores that in the sense that, um, you know, really what was going on was these people came from Eastern Europe. They they more or less had to work on Shabbat and sort of were trying to become American, so Orthodoxy wasn't really available to them. Um, they came to try out the Reform Synagogue, and they, they saw that it was very foreign and, and uh, you know, very much, uh, they weren't particularly welcome, and it didn't really uh, uh, speak to them in many ways. And so they ended up where they ended up, conservative Judaism, right? It was kind of in the middle. And, and what they've always been is sort of middle Jews, you know, that they're looking for a, a traditional feel, but, they, but they're not very concerned with the sort of philosophy of halakha, Jewish law, and change, whereas that's 
what the rabbinical schools are obsessed with, right? That that's, Correct. That's, and, and so I guess I'm wondering... But that's, uh, all, but that's always yeah. in Jewish history. Right. So tell them, so say more about that. I mean, I'm curious how you well, think about all that. You know, th- this classical period of form is absolutely defined by the rabbis. You know, all, all of the rabbis of the congregations by the early part of the 20th century were being trained in one place. They weren't imports from Germany. They, they were being trained at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. They all had the same teachers. The teachers all shared pretty much the same philosophy. And they were therefore felt empowered to define this is what true Reform Judaism is and what should happen in our synagogues. The Jews in their home did whatever they wanted to do, just like the Jews in the conservative congregations did whatever they wanted to do, just like the Jews in the Sephardic congregations did whatever they wanted to do in their home. There was never an enforcement mechanism in the home. There was just an enforcement mechanism in the synagogue. Which, which goes to the 21st century congregations of how could the 92nd Street Y have a uh, banquet dinner that was kosher style, but not kosher? You know, who makes the decisions as to what the norm of the community will be? And that's an ongoing tension between rabbis and, and their lay leaders. So on that note, we're actually going to wrap up this episode. I know that that, that's going to be a challenge because we've got so much good stuff that we are sort of in the middle of still, and that's because this is part one of a two-parter with Danny Freelander, our awesome guest, who is speaking about the history of Reform Judaism from the early 1800s all the way through now. We encourage you to listen to part two that'll be coming out a week after this one. And uh, we also want to encourage you, as we do at the end of every episode, to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with a donation either on a monthly basis or just one time. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. Make sure to check out part two. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.